Hello, and welcome to Contemplations, and today we're going to be debating whether society is going to collapse. And of course, this is a very important question, so I imagine people are probably going to be interested in this. And uh, the sides are as follows. We have uh, Bodade on the not collapsing, myself as well, and uh, Connor and Carl think it is perhaps likely that things are going to collapse, or more possible than we believe it's going to be. I don't necessarily want to, to pigeonhole your position. I don't even know what my position is, to be honest. Okay. So, I mean... <laughs> but the, the, the reason for this um, yeah. contemplations is we had a really interesting discussion in the office off camera. Um, I think you were involved, weren't you, Carl? Probably. I think you were arguing that collapse is, is at least more likely than I thought it was. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it's possible. Mm -hmm. it can, I don't deny that it's... it's possible you know you, yourself and dan had a really good conversation on on brokenomics about it yeah. just after the fourth turning and you were setting up a lot of the baked in errors of the current system that will lead it to some succumb to the force of entropy um so well you seem to vacillate on twitter i've seen sometimes you're really hopeful and optimistic other times it's over it's over it's all done <laughs> it's never sometimes it looks over you know mm. what i mean yeah, right, no, yeah. Don't well, blame I'm, a, you. I'm a natural optimist necessarily. right so I, I i naturally try to look for the good in things and i think that we can do whatever we want to do and i think we can win but sometimes situation does look so bloody dire where it's just like okay even my optimism is like, look, I'm not sure this is salvageable, actually. Yeah, I'm not a natural optimist. <laughs> I'm very pessimistic as well, but yeah. clearly well, not, according to this side. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I would just call myself really a realist. I genuinely don't think a systems collapse is coming. A decline, perhaps. But I think actually what's going to happen here is there's not... We don't have uh, just two completely... No, no. Uh, diametrically opposed opinions. It will be each one. There's be like four shades of grey here. I think mm -hmm. is what's going to happen. Almost certainly. Um, yeah. I think also we're probably going to agree on a lot of the problems in society. Yeah. I think that's what brought us all here in the first place. Yeah. Too many academics. Liberalism. <laughs> oh, we don't agree on that. Okay. Yeah. You right. hired them. <laughs> that's true. I did. <laughs> that's a good point. Office of academics. <laughs> but um yeah I, I think we're going to basically agree on the actual problems that could lead to a collapse but it's just their implication yeah. whether they're actually going to lead to a collapse and how they fit into the greater whole more generally speaking i think another question is also um how do you characterize the people running things are they <laughs> not very kindly well of course not <laughs> I, i'm going to be very much on side with being rude to them another question is whether um the elites are incompetent, malevolent, a combination of both. And which elites also are we talking about? Do we mean just general rich people? Do we mean the sort of rich people who have political influence? I'm thinking sort of your Bill Gates is, he doesn't necessarily have a formal political office, but has a lot of influence seemingly. Or all the politicians, and I, I have particular views about this, that may well differ from your guys, it's that shapes my reading of the situation and um so i suppose it's interdimensional lizards isn't it i thought i'm glad someone's finally saying that, I thought that, <laughs> from the hollow earth <laughs> mm. yeah how could it be hollow if it's flat mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> look just because it's flat doesn't mean it's two-dimensional so it's a donut shape right got it well no no it's just deep <laughs> <laughs> we've got a thick earth <laughs> yeah i might be on the flat earth <laughs> So um, I was thinking it might be worthwhile just going around the room and, and say, sort of seeing what people's general opinions are before we start. 
because it may well be that people's opinions change. I'm this isn't an opinion I'm necessarily married to. I just think it's my read of the situation. Could change in light of different evidence that I've not considered. And um, I suppose I may as well start with myself so I give you guys some time to think. So my reading of the situation is that politicians, generally speaking, are you know have as much effect um, on the world in a sort of holistic sense as a mascot does in a, a football game. Like they're, they're the public facing face of things being done behind the scenes. Sure, they have a small amount of influence, right? They can um, get people amped up about certain issues and they can pass sort of small legislation. But in the grand scheme of things, particularly when it comes to the economy, um, they tend not to shape things because look at, say, the Western world. All of our com economies are very similar to one another. We've, we've got very similar political systems as well. There's a sort of homogeneity to everything that suggests that there is um, someone dictating or a group of people dictating what um, political systems are desirous. And my personal reading of the situation is that it's all about resource extraction. The, the system is designed to get to a sort of Goldilocks zone of exploiting ordinary people so that um, very wealthy people, sort of multinational corporations, can hoover up money because we've seen a long period of economic growth, you know, we're as technologically advanced as ever, and yet people are struggling to make ends meet even though they're working. And so there's an indication there that the money being generated is actually being hoovered away by other people. And you look at, say, inequality, and normally inequality wouldn't be a problem in my mind, you know, I believe in a free market and everything. But you see something like the, the COVID-19 pandemic, and rich people became significantly richer from it, even though a lot of the economy um, was closed down. How does that happen? Well, it happens because the economy is rigged against ordinary people. And I think that's why things are bad. It's not necessarily that people are as incompetent as they seem. I think it can sometimes be very useful to be seen as incompetent rather than malevolent, but I think there is a certain amount of malevolence there, or indifference, however you really want to characterise it. They just don't care about ordinary people and their, their hardship. So there's, there's a lot there that you've laid out. I think I know, yeah. Very, very briefly on the COVID stuff, I think the reason that the billionaires got richer is because the small businessmen were closed down, whereas mm -hmm. the multinational corporations kept open. But this so, was done selectively by government, right? Yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. It was done by the government. So I'm not, I'm not sure... And the thing is, they I think that they don't think of themselves as malevolent. I think that was just a case of cowardice, actually, and incompetence. Um, I mean, I've met a bunch of politicians. I've met lots of civil servants. I don't, none of them seem evil That's when you talk to them. Not necessarily the level I'm looking Some at, necessarily. Really, um, like, I'm, I'm thinking more of... You know the, the the billionaire sorts of types. I'm, I'm going to sound yeah, a little yeah. bit like a, a Marxist here. I mean, Michael goes transparently evil. Yeah, no, I'm joking. I was joking. <laughs> well, I'm not <laughs> supposed to be a joke. <laughs> um, I think that's probably one we all agree with. Peter yeah. Mandelson. I mean, well, yeah, Mandelson, literally known right. as the Lord of Darkness. Yeah. Alistair yeah. Campbell. Yeah, mm. yeah. But anyway, um, anyone in the Blair cabinet, yes, obviously yes. deliberately evil. But I think but, they're useful idiots more than anything else. They're sort of part of a, a grander scheme that they may not always be privy. To. They may yeah. even have good intentions. So the way the way I see it is the the average MP is actually fairly well-meaning, 
but you've never heard of them because what they do is wander around the constituency helping out people with small things, right? Like actually, most MPs aren't famous. You don't actually know who they are, right? Like, you know, who's the MP for, I don't know, just some random place in Scotland. You can't tell, right? You don't know. But you know a certain select group of MPs who go in front of the media, make themselves famous, have contentious opinions and become kind of a lightning rod for an issue. Um, so m most MPs, I do think, are just kind of small-time MPs just doing what their constituents or th th what they think. I don't necessarily the, disagree uh, with that, yeah. Right. And so I think they aren't really power brokers in what's happening here. Um, and then I think in each party, you have a sort of coalition of people who are essentially at the top of the party pulling the strings, making decisions, allowing and disallowing certain things to happen. Um, and then you, of course, have the sort of supranational infrastructure of the global economy, various NGOs, um, how to put it, like the International Alliance of the West. You know what I mean? Like the... Liberal economic order post-war. Yeah. The, so yeah, the, it'd the be world. like the Western world, but sort of Japan and people yeah, that yeah, yeah. are broadly aligned yeah. with the United States, basically. Yeah, and you've got a certain selection of sort of power brokers in that who are the ones who go to foreign countries and like Anthony Blinken going to Israel recently. Like he's part of this sort of upper crust of people. Um, but this doesn't include just politicians. Like you say, people like Bill Gates are in it. The sort of people who end up at the World Economic Forum yeah. are in it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think they are the ones who are exerting most influence. But I think it's important to remember that this isn't direct control that they have. What they have are kind of orders and incentives, right? So they can give orders to things and theoretically it will end up as they want. So they can order a lockdown, but they can't, they're not in control of the consequences of lockdown, right? They're not in control of the fact that people might just not comply. It might have, you know, it does have deleterious effects and things like that. And so they are making big moves that have lots of ripples in waters that aren't still. And so they aren't, gods they don't have particular foresight they don't know what's going to happen when they do a particular thing but they have the power to make something happen and then the waves start crashing and things start changing so that's that's how i view because a lot of people take this kind of sort of as if there's sauron behind it all right as, it's, as it's if, a more conspiratorial view right it's a little bit too conspiratorial for me where they think the people in charge are all-powerful, all-knowing, and are able to plan ahead in a significant number of steps. And actually, I, there was there was a guy who got into a Bilderberg meeting in the 80s. Uh, it was a journalist who got into a Bilderberg meeting, and he came out of it going, oh my God, I'm actually way more worried than I was. Because at least if someone's puppeteering the entire world, well, at least you know someone's in charge, and you know there's a hand at the rudder. But he came out going, no, they have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, and they're afraid of losing what it is they have now. And so, really, you know, no one's at the rudder, and we're steering blind into the squalls of the future. So, uh, hmm, good luck. I mean, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. I think the only thing that might be a bit different is just the amount of weighting that I sure. put on uh, influence. I might yeah. put more weight on the sort of multinational international well i, sort I wasn't of trying to of course yeah there, you know? but i i do agree that i mean I've, I've met many mps and you know you get a read for a person don't you and sometimes yeah. you can just tell that they're somewhat oblivious to the, the grander schemes of things and they're sort of bogged down in the day-to-day -day of their yeah. their um sort of mp duties and Cr christopher hitchens noted that the average mp just isn't terribly bright and he's right i think 
Mm. Just looking at the MPs we have now, you know, I wouldn't say they're the best and brightest in the country, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the only thing I would kind of add on to what you said is that the incentives for MPs to do <coughs> things that aren't necessarily votes of their conscience. Um, yeah. that there's a lot of that going on, both from party, from yeah. pressure groups, yeah. from multinationals, from business. Yeah. And of course, they invite people in to write legislation that influence things. And because of just the time limitations, it's very easy to defer your work to someone else, which is a avenue for influence. And so I think that there's more influence on them than they have agency over their own voting sort of behavior, if you will. But it very much varies depending on the individuals. Sure. Does anyone else have anything to, to yeah. add on this? I think it's worth setting in place definition that I'm conceiving of with collapse. And that is the extinction of an existing paradigm. And that doesn't mean it won't wither away into a new one. There's, of course, the possibility of existential collapses, um, which is like a grand scale engineering of human obsolescence that is possible if we had a global nuclear war or China gets better at engineering a virus this time or or the AI overlord that, that Biden, as we've been through, has legislated, has a baked-in abortion bias, takes over, goes mad and thinks that human beings are a cancer on the planet. But I don't think anyone here is really arguing for that, are they? No, it's not impossible, but it's unlikely. Uh, yeah, right? I agree. Yeah. But I did want to say that what I think is going to collapse and be ushered out is the tenability of the progress narrative. And that's currently what all of our elites are baked into, whether or not they're the kind of stewardship nexus that you're referring to with the international order and the cocktail parties at Bilderberg and Davos. The, the managerial par- paradigm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The reason they have the arrogance of the managerial paradigm is because you've taken a Christian perspective of history going linearly towards a judgment and the realization of heaven. You've taken out the metaphysics of that And in a mechanistic universe, we think, okay, if everything is comprehensible, human beings are the only rational animals on the planet, we can use technology and cognition to make the world a better place for human beings, better being relative, obviously, because we don't share the vision of the global elite, then what we can do is we can steward history towards said utopia, manifesting heaven on earth. And I think the elites actually believe in this because at the last G and B20, Klaus Schwab got up and, and again, mascot for the for the overall order. It's not like if you take him out as some of the telegram boomers think that yeah, yeah. the whole world's going to be safe. He's not Ming the Merciless, you know. Someone always pick up the ring. Um, he, he is a great figurehead for it, though. Yeah. That's a German guy born in Ravensburg under Nazi occupation. Oh, yeah, whose dad yeah. may or may not have made the flamethrowers for the Waffen SS as yeah, well. Amazing. Uh, just a brilliant lore for a villain. Yeah. Um, obviously a villain. But he got up and gave a speech and he said, what we need to be is the currents of history are actually flowing. In order so that we're not swept up in said currents, we need to be the big fish, because the big fish will always eat the slow fish. So we need to be the biggest fish and the fastest fish as well. Uh, he literally has a term which is master the future. Yes. Um, this way he's written, written the great reset yeah. and the great narrative. And the narrative point of that is basically the marketing arm of all of the policies. But it's not just that. This is this is why ARC recently just happened of where they're saying we need an incorporative story that everyone can get on board with that's, that's a parallel to this. And unfortunately, ARC did open with a, a speech by Philippa Stroud that said, we believe the ARC of history is long and bends towards justice. Even the people who purport to be on our side 
have bought into the progress narrative. And what I think is happening is we're getting skeptics of the progress narrative that we've covered before, like like Illich and Schmidt or or McLuhan or even my friend Mary, who go, there's no such thing as progress. It's not an unalloyed good. It's not that we're constantly getting technologically better. What we're doing is we're we're creating things that give us trade-offs. So we're always rendering something obsolete and we're always bringing something new into being. Um, take the take the motor car, for example. You're revitalizing a kind of chivalric spirit where the guy can go and pick up his prom date, but you're also extinguishing the horse and cart and all of the social institutions that come with that. And the things that happen with technology as part of progress, the instrument of making us better, um, as Tony Blair would say, is that you're reducing the amount of reliance on traditions and other people. So you're making yourself more individual and, and more prosperous. And what that means is human relationships are becoming more and more obsolete. So if we if we engineer ourselves to a state of obsolescence to the point of where we're totally reliant on technology to be individual, and somewhere in the future that technology fails, that's become so much of the water in which we swim, if it can't be fixed, then it descends into the kind of scenes that you've got in your lovely backdrop behind you. Sorry, where people just get desperate. you asking who are the elites? Wasn't that what you and Carl were It, it was a little bit, yeah. Right. Okay. Sorry. I was trying to. I was trying to explain my. I was trying to explain my differential vision of, of the collapse. So the yeah. the point mm -hmm. comes back to this. Okay. I think these people, the elite, which I think you've already outlined pretty well, right. are swept up in this kind of narrative force, and it's 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 disaggregated. It's not that everyone's. I think that they're seeing this is these are the managerial policies that adapt to the the direction of history that it's already going in. It's not that they're always deliberately trying to do controlled demolition and end up with anarchy and, and burning buildings and total privation. I think they see themselves as the stewards of that direction history going in. So it matters who the elite are, but it also matters what they believe. Mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. And I think um, it, it's also worth pinning down as well. Um, I've just come up with another sort of definition of, of collapse that you've reminded me of. So we've sort of got the, the nuclear Armageddon, total collapse, all life on Earth, probably very unlikely, right? Then we've got a sort of South Africa style one where uh, systems decline over time slowly because of mismanagement. And then perhaps you have like a year 2000 thing where this, you know, where everyone thought when the clocks t changed over, all the technology would fail. Perhaps trying to let off an EMP pulse or yeah, something. Yeah, 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 that's what I had in mind. <clears throat> and then perhaps um, a reading of it whereby things are male malevolently controlled. Um, and of course, you can have hybrids. It doesn't necessarily have to be a discrete, it can be a bit of both. And I think there's part malevolence, part, um, you know, it's undeniable that there are some people who genuinely think that they're doing good things, right? It's it's also, there is incompetence embedded in the system. I think you can have a fourth one of where successive generations of people that didn't build a system don't know how to maintain it. And so it withers and dies in itself. We've seen this from the internal leaks That's, of Silicon um, Valley. South Africa, isn't it? Well, it's really, Brazil, yeah. the film Brazil. And that too, yeah. About, of where things start to break behind the walls. And so they blame like, vague terrorist networks to give a narrative to the fact that actually we just can't fix these things and it's going to inevitably succumb to entropy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair enough. What do you think, Bo? <clears throat> I'll just say before I talk about the elites, I think historically probably the two most obvious giant system-wide collapses are the Bronze Age collapse and the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Um, anyway, for the elites, I mean, it's Oprah. It's obviously Oprah. We know this. Right, let's stop lying to ourselves. No, it's not over. It's the uh, it's the Freemasons. Uh, no. 
I think the real answer to it, or was it Dr. Parvini who talked about the octopus, that there's many legs to this thing? I think that's not a bad way of, of looking at it. I think there's many, I think there's me, actually many different centers of power. So for example, <clears> the, <throat> the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party or whatever they call it, is not in hoc to the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon. Right? Putin doesn't have to do what Blinken tells him to do, for example. Um, and, and then you've got things like um, someone like Klaus Schwab, who's like fairly obviously influential. Uh, but then I think you've got other things like there's some giant pension funds in the world mm. can pull all sorts of strings. Mm. Or there's a collective, collective of traders and money uh, and market makers on sort of forex exchanges the foreign exchange markets in some ways they can be more powerful than any one given government in a sense and all the and it's all going on all at once yeah and there, I, I definitely don't think there's one mastermind there isn't one bill gates or oprah winfrey type person that <laughs> or, everyone or, that or, everyone or coalition of masterminds yeah there's multiple like, mm. i feel like London, Moscow, Beijing, and Washington aren't all on, they're definitely not all on the same page as far as I can tell. Mm. And then like the money markets are a, 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 another, but there's, the deeper you go into it, there are more and more of these things. So I don't necessarily think that, well, I definitely don't think there's one mind, um, you know, like he, you, I'd never really bought this, but back in sort of the 18th or maybe early 19th century, there was an argument to be made that, for example, the Freemasons held a, a lot of influence over all sorts of people, not that they controlled the world. But I, don't, I think that sort of thing is less and less the case. Mm. Um, you've got someone like Elon Musk, for example, mm. um, who's some sort of free radical mm. in the system, right? <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, if it's uh, something like an octopus, I think that's not a terrible analogy. Um, Do you know what's interesting is the I, I thought that Hillary Clinton's Wikipedia uh, WikiLeaks were interesting because she just felt like someone who was trying to figure out the best thing for her and her faction in a turbulent political environment, right? But if you know if the sort of QAnon style narrative is to be believed, she's actually a Machiavellian puppet master, right? And she didn't come across that way. She is obviously an important power broker in mm, the mm. systems in which she operates. Mm. But like, she doesn't have some sort of miraculous foresight of what the consequences of her actions will be. Mm. Her insecurity so, is apparent. Yeah, one, yeah, yeah, yeah. One yeah. big locus of power, I would say, is still the United States. If you look at the amount of military spending, even last year, it dwarfed everyone else by so far. Yeah. So then do you say, is it the Oval Office? Is it the Joint Chiefs of Staff over at the Pentagon? Is it the State Department? Or is it is it a small cabal of a few of those people together? Or, or what is it? Or are there some sort of actual shadowy type figures behind them? Um, I just did a Brokenomics with Dan actually, talking about how um, sometimes there are essentially private companies that, acts, that act as fronts for the NSA, or the CIA, or all sorts of organisations. Maybe Swiss many, maybe some most people have never heard of, or we've no one at this table has ever heard of. And in fact, there's a small cabal of guys there mm. that actually pull the strings of people at the Pentagon or the State Department. Mm. And so it gets murky quickly. Yeah. 
um, and, and that's just one is the military industrial might uh, of the United States. But then you have got, say, the CCP. Um, they are they are enemies in all sorts of ways. They're not singing from the same hymn sheet at all. But then you look at the example of COVID, where they seem to be acting to some degree in unison over that, mm. which is quite worrying. Um, I mean, there are, there are lots of ways that we can show that these people aren't working together, such as the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Like, if anyone was like, oh, I think Putin's in hock to the World Economic Forum, well... That shows that he's not, I think, right? They, they wiped him off their Young Global Leaders website. To, um, exactly. So the, the, I, th- I think you're you're framing this exactly right. It's There are lots of power centers in you know the ocean of power that is just things happening in the globe. Mm. And people are pulling strings. They are making things happen, but no one's in control of the system. That's the thing. And so you get people acting in ways like... You, no, none of them wanted Elon to take over Twitter, for example. You know, There's a lot of pushback on that. And yet, here we are. So it shows that their control is not absolute. It looks like Russia's probably going to win in Ukraine. There'll be some sort of settlement. Their control is not absolute. So they have a lot of power. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of influence. But that's only over a portion of the system. And even then, that's not a guarantee of anything. Just very quickly yeah, yeah, say, I do think the Kremlin and the State Department are working against each other's interests quite hard. It looks that way. So right there... There's sort of some old school leftover of the Cold War is yeah. still going on. And uh, Xi in Beijing is just certainly another yeah. uh, another centre of power outside of both of those. They they recognise this. This is what the, the West predictions by 2030, I think it was the last one that said that we're going to become a multipolar world. Yeah. So they realise there are... We already are, I think. Yeah, but, but they... I don't think their thinking is quite caught up with that yet in that they are still under the belief that even if the biggest fish can't set the current, they can at least swim as a shoal. And so they're thinking we can have these supranational institutions like the WEF, particularly the UN, which is the which is the driving force behind all of this, because the WEF just is the, the policy arm of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. The WHO, which is adopting China's pandemic policy and rolling it out everywhere, they're going with appeasement strategies to whoever looks like the fish that's swimming out ahead of the pack so if china is looking the strongest on the pandemic policy then they'll they'll copy them um if they think that they can bet on the ability for the eu and the us foreign policy to hem russia back into line think a mistaken bet then they'll bet on that and Zelensky in in ukraine but they've got these leviathanic supranational organizations to try to disentangle the various conflicts between these epicenters of of competing power because they think that they can have global harmony because they think that's what will steward the the utopia into being it's I not, think it's they're not wrong even, but it, they can't even help themselves mm. right because these are the liberal managers and they mm. want just to be able to have everyone in the box and so they can negotiate and mediate the conflicts mm. but russia has shown that that's not going to be the case and the attempt to kind of judo flip Russia and be like, right, we'll crash your economy. Well, that didn't work either. And so that's showing the limits of their power on a global scale. Well, the the Russian people actually ended up getting cheaper fuel and food, didn't they? Because Russia stopped exporting it and then we lost out. 
Yeah. So we, we yeah. basically Ours sanctioned is, ourselves. Exactly. And so it shows the limits of their international mm-hmm. power. They are not actually the masters of the world that they have pretensions towards being. And as you were saying, the, the competing power structures are very obviously at odds at this point and not cooperating. And so we're in the multipolar world and the future is looking quite uncertain. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple of things to add here. Um, first and foremost is when I talk about collapse, I've kind of got in mind um, the sort of Anglosphere because we, we can see a decline here where it's not necessarily present or it's taking a different form elsewhere. And and so I think keeping the, the actual collapse discussion, obviously we're talking about the elites and power and that yeah. isn't limited to borders, is it? But when it actually comes to the collapse, I think sort of, the Anglosphere in particular is is what's in mind because there there are sort of similarity of policies. If you think it's relevant, perhaps we can talk about it. But uh, I just, I don't want to spread us our conversation mm. so wide that we we can't necessarily touch on everything. Well, and um, uh, sorry, I no just sorry, got, I thought you finished. It's before I yes. forget it. That's yeah. all. But um, another point that I wanted to make is just a general point about human nature. Uh, which would be very useful in understanding how elites might behave. And um, that, of course, comes from game theory, which I think we're probably all familiar with. But for those in the audience, game theory is more or less a, a mathematical way to to illustrate that in in a system where you can either trust or not trust someone, it always makes sense not to trust them and, and betray them because the cost of trusting them and then them betraying you is much higher than vice versa. That is not my reading of game theory. I, I'm trying to explain <laughs> it very simply, right? If, if you can explain it better, please well, go ga- ahead. game theory suggests that, but it, whenever the experiments run, people trusting each other, people A, tend to trust each other and get better outcomes when they do. Yes, but there's also a sort of um, fairies and Peter Pan effect of the elites will know about game theory and will believe that it works like that. And they're more inclined to behave in that way than perhaps your ordinary person who comes into contact with people who they come into contact with regularly and have rapport and trust. But even, even I mean, there are experiments, even if it's strangers, uh, if the strangers just trust each other and say, push the button and they both get out mm-hmm. without one of them getting killed or whatever, um, then most people are more likely to trust one another, right? And they get mm-hmm. the better outcome by trusting each other. I am familiar with um, the, yeah. the experiments you're on about. And, yeah. you know, there is some utility in, in them. But one of the criticisms of those experiments is that the stakes weren't real. They weren't high enough. Sure, they weren't real. And people like, will certainly behave differently. Yeah. But um, it the, the point I'm trying to make here is that there are incentives in place for elites to compete with each other. However, there is a very important mechanism in place that... Um, elite circles are very small and everyone kind of knows each other. So if you do business with someone and stab them in the back, then everyone's going to know about it. No one's going to want to do business with you. So although it may seem like there's a certain amount of competition, there's actually a very good incentive for people to stay on good terms with their sort of peers, if you will, because then everyone will turn against them. And if, if lots and lots of very wealthy, influential people turn against you, that's pretty much it for you. It, it makes your life very difficult, which is what Donald Trump found out. Because mm-hmm. this this was the real thing about Donald Trump, he was a class traitor. Well, I think that's fundamentally it, right? Yeah, yeah. Is, is that's, that- that's why they'll hate him. Because he, he, you are right, Like, and Saul Alinsky talks about this in Rules Radicals. Like, look, there's a lot of movement within the class, but they don't step outside of their class, right? Because they understand they have a band of power and allowing that to crumble means that the whole thing is lost you know so they there is intra-class conflict but there's always a boundary 
that they weren't crossing, Donald Trump crossed that boundary. Mm. And so he became a traitor to the elite class in America. And that's why they will hate him and will never forgive him. Yeah. And I think that in many ways, um, people's own firsthand experience of how class and that dynamic works mm. will inform how it works for elites. Because I think fundamentally how these sorts of things are, are judged, it's it's a sort of, um, how do I put it? It's, it's sort of similar in nature to uh, almost like an emotional instinct, I suppose you could say, that people are acutely aware of their position in, in say, a hierarchy and that of other people. And it, it, it almost informs that at them at an unconscious level, they, they see someone and they see them as being lower status. You don't necessarily have to process it. You don't think, is this person high status or not? You just know. Mm. And I think that people go about their, their daily lives with that frame of mind. And so people generally keep within the social groups that they see as their own because if they're seen to be affiliating with um, people outside of their group, then they might lose their group status and that would be bad for them. I think a lot of this is predicated on elite insecurity though. This is this is something that you were right about Clinton. And this is, I think, explains their reflexive disgust at disharmony or something they can't understand. The managerial instinct is to interpret and perfect everything. Um, with the belief that nothing is out of reach of, of human beings. To guarantee certainty. Yeah, yeah, hence where there's a German at the head of the World Economic Forum. Uh, this is the idea behind what what people have accused the sort of WEF's environmental and economic plan of being as a kind of global communism. And it, looks, it looks like it, but I think it's actually more technically and temperamentally driven. Um, this is the donut economy concept. Are we familiar with this? No, give me a rundown. Okay, so it was cooked up by some Oxford academic, and it means an entire circular economy. And currently, the economy functions kind of like a donut, of where there are things beyond the boundaries of economic consideration, and things that will always, you know, succumb to entropy and and, and things like that. Uh, and then in the ring of that, there are things that they can calculate. So that's um, ecological wellness, human flourishing, uh, mortality general wealth and how equally that's distributed. And in the middle, there is this hole of liabilities, which means ecological <clears throat> decay, um, resource shortage, social unrest, conflict. What they want to do is they want to technically manage the ring of the donut until it closes to become a fixed pie that's then equitably divisible between all nations and all peoples. Yeah. And I think they're not doing that, even though they did write an article saying, does the fourth industrial revolution and capitalism need more Marxism to survive the collapse. I don't think they're doing that out of an abstract commitment to communism. I think they're doing that out of a temperamental inclination to think we need to technically understand and make certain all things. Mm -hmm. And so this is how we bring certainty into being. Um, so I think it's, it's as much a thing of this is our social club and we're looking out for our own and our own interests as it is I'm petrified of uncertainty. I'm petrified of the angry world Schwab says is going to happen and things falling off a cliff as they are in South Africa. So we need to create a kind of end of history state where everyone's happy enough that there's no uncertainty and no unrest. Then that's a lot of the driving influence behind it as well. Mm -hmm. I, I don't disagree. Um, I think we've talked a lot about the elites. Is there anyone else got anything to add before we well, move on? It might be worth talking about the people who aren't the elites, right? Sure. Because, I mean, you've got the... The people who are dependent on the elites, like the sort of 
the subclass, I guess we call them the middle class, that have their own influences and powers. I mean, the media as well. The media is clearly downstream from the elite themselves. Yeah, um, it's fair to say that a, yeah. a journalist is middle class, right? Yeah, yeah. If we if we're just going to broadly term out these classes, and then so you've got like the people who are essentially the kind of serfs of the regime because they are entirely dependent on it. Um, I'm thinking scientists, academics, journalists, office workers writ large, you know, the sort of managerial office worker type who literally spends their day filling in spreadsheets and HR forms and stuff like that. The knowledge economy. The knowledge economy. That's a good way of summarizing it. Uh, and then you've got the people under those, which we were we can vulgarly call the working class, uh, who are the people who are actually laboring, the labor economy, I suppose you call them, who actually physically make the things that we're using. Uh, and I guess this leads us on to the concept of collapse because a lot of that isn't here anymore, the labor economy. And so that's an issue, isn't it? It will be increasingly outsourced to automation. Yeah. And this is why, again, in, in the WEF's you'll own nothing and be happy thing, they don't conceive of the person bringing you the things to your doorstep like they were under lockdown. I mean, this is why lockdown has been summarized as rich people sitting at home and poor people bringing them stuff. Yeah. You know, there, were, there were still people driving the Amazon vans and fixing hospitals and things like that. What they want to do by 2030 is outsource all that to drone delivery to make you perfectly atomized, very efficient, and also not have this class. The problem that they see is discontent that is going to be bred from dispossession and possible resource privation. And this is why you get types like Yuval Noah Harari who I don't actually think is malevolent. I think he's just an idiot. I hate that guy yeah, no, so I much. I hate him as I well. I think he's evil. Because, <laughs> because he's, yeah, but he, in, in his speech, he genuinely he uses the term useless eaters to say that the no shortage of digital Stalinists will see people this way. <coughs> I don't think he actually sees people this way. Right. I think he's sincerely concerned and he's thrown his lot in with the West because it seems like the most powerful, especially because they invite him to the party so he likes belonging. They seem like the most powerful and influential way to deal with these useless eaters without exterminating them, which I don't think he wants, actually. I think he's seeing the trend towards technology to create this dispossessed class and we're going to have to do something with them. I think I, I, know, I, I looked at mm. his physiognomy and I was like, evil. I mean, fair <laughs> enough, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, God. Um, I, th I think that actually there isn't an incentive to get rid of people. It's better for people to have more people because, the, you know, the more people there are, the more they compete with each other, suppress wages, and also the easier they are to, say, exploit if you're that way that's not as much a consideration if you have like universal basic income and, and plentiful resources. Because if, if you have the metaverse where, you know, it's renewably run so energy isn't a worry, everyone's individual, everyone's plugged in, you're not worried about resource procurement as much. And I think actually there is an incentive for some people to eliminate people because we do have people like Jane Goodall and all, and all that, like the Georgia Guidestone oh, type stuff where it says, we need to reduce the population down for ecological stability. You know, the, the mad club of Rome type stuff. So there are some of those types among the elite, I think. Well, there's an, ac uh, there's an active anti-human agenda hmm. that's going on. And uh, Elon Musk being one of the few people who's actually going to speak about it, yeah. right? speak against it. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com. Thank you.